Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Emily Lajeneau and Sarah Richling about their paper, The Effects of Mastery Criteria on Maintenance, a Replication with Most to Least Prompting. Emily is a Senior Behavior Analyst at Glenwood, a nonprofit agency serving children, adolescents, and adults with autism and other behavioral health needs. And Sarah is a clinical assistant professor at Auburn University, where she serves as the director of clinical training. This is a really interesting conversation that I got to have with Emily and Sarah talking about mastery criteria, diving into some of the important considerations around terms like mastery criteria. I learned a lot reading this paper and and certainly doing this interview, and I'm really excited to share it with you because of that. So without further ado, here's my interview with Emily Lajeneau and Sarah Richling. Hello, Emily and Sarah. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hello. Hi. We're really excited to have you on the show today to talk about your papers, your paper, I'm sorry, The Effects of Mastery Criteria on Maintenance, a Replication with Most to Least Prompting. This is a really fascinating topic. I I don't do research in this area. Like I, I read research in this area, of course, and I'm always talking about it with my students. I'm fascinated with this topic, so I'm really excited to get into it with all of you. But before we jump into that, we'd like to hear a little bit about our authors. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about yourself, what your current role is. Uh, what your sort of background is in behavior analysis, and then maybe why you're interested in this topic specifically. Sure. So I am Emily Longineau. I am currently serving as a senior behavior analyst for Glenwood. We are a nonprofit agency serving children, adolescents, and adults with autism and other behavioral health disorders in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, This is my fourth year working for that company. So right now I have On my caseload, um, individuals ranging from eight years old up to 21 years old. We serve mostly individuals with severe problem behavior that are unable to safely live at home with their families or go to a public school. Um, So they have a residential placement with us and also attend a private day school on campus. Um, A little bit about my background. I actually got my undergraduate degree in teaching and early childhood education. And I took some BCABA coursework in my undergraduate career and really started to fall in love just with the concepts of behaviorism um, and learning how to serve people that had challenging behaviors, um, primarily in the school setting is how I got into the field. Um, Thereafter, I got my master's degree in applied behavior analysis at Auburn, and I was able to study under the supervision of Sarah 
And that's kind of how I got interested in this research line. Um, I think that as behavior analysts, our goal is always to create these meaningful and long lasting changes. And we usually define that by some sort of mastery criterion. That's how we determine when someone is successful. Um, so I think the decision criteria around how we are making those choices as clinicians is really, really important to make sure we are kind of meeting that ultimate goal. It makes sense that you would have sort of that educational background and being very interested in mastery criteria. Did you do your undergraduate studies at Auburn as well? I did my undergraduate studies at Barry College in Rome, Georgia. Okay. So, and mm-hmm. in, in I know that program because I know Tom Radkos that works there. I don't know if you would have been there at the same time. I don't think you we were overlapped. There. But they, so they have like an undergraduate behavior analysis offerings, right? So you, that's where you got into contact. Yeah. So when I was there, they were actually piloting the BCABA program. So I was part of the first cohort to finish with that coursework. That's awesome. And then yes. you, you went up to, to Auburn, Auburn. Yes. I did an internship with the Marcus Autism Center in Decatur, Georgia. Um, and I really, really loved the work that I did there with the autism population. And one of my supervisors actually directed me to Auburn's program. Um, so I completed my master's work there. And that brings us to Sarah, I suppose, right? So you obviously got to know Emily while she was in your program. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your your role, your background, and, and why this topic for you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Emily was a student of mine and uh, one of uh, my best students, actually. So I'm so glad to be here with her today um, and doing this with her. So, um, yeah, so I'm a clinical assistant faculty member uh, at Auburn University currently, and this is my sixth year here. And uh, I also direct our clinical training here across various various practical sites and now including a campus autism program as well. Uh, My background, I received my uh, PhD from the University of Nevada, Reno, and I studied under Dr. Larry Williams there. And I did my dissertation on this topic, actually, along with uh, Dr. Larry Williams and Dr. Jim Carr. And uh, that's that's initially how I got interested in the topic specifically, were with some conversations that I had uh, with Dr. Jim Carr around the topic. But more generally, I think my interests uh, started with uh, my broader interest in behavior analysis. What I really love about this field is our ability to self-edit, where we can find errors in our own ways and and our own lore, and we're open to exploring it and improving upon it. And this is one of those things that it was sort of uh, something we got trained. I I started in the field when I was 18 years old, and as long as I can remember, I was trained in these kinds of procedures. It was always 80% or above, three sessions a row, or 90% or above, two sessions a row. And I never really questioned where that came from, but I assume given the field I was in, it came from somewhere. And so when it, when it came up that there wasn't any research on it, I was, I thought, oh my gosh, of course, like we need to investigate that rather than kind of shoving it under the rug. It was like, let's investigate this further and ensure that what we're doing is actually empirically supported. And, uh, And I'm so interested in the topic because it's just so ubiquitously used, not just in behavior analysis, but in so many fields as well. Um, It's comparable to the bees get degrees in general education. And uh, it's not just in tacting research. It's all over the place. And whether it be equivalence or 
or even any other um, investigation that requires applying some criterion to learning objectives. So it's very broadly applicable, which is useful for me in my uh, role of uh, practical training that I can sort of bring that research along to, to any investigative topic that we find ourselves uh, in. I love that that comment you said about the discovering some some of the rules being arbitrary from time to time, right? And I and I there's like a special issue, can't remember what journal, but they talked about like lab lore, how a lot of behavior analytic practices are essentially passed down through mentors or like the sort of lab training process. That at some point, once you like sort of track them down, they're arbitrary rules that like you know, a really well-informed, you know, professor or mentor or someone, you know, came up with. So it's not to say that they're not, you know, a good rule, but that there's no actual research supporting many of these things. Mastery criteria uh, at one point being one of those, obviously, Sarah, you've done a lot of research in that to, to build that out. But I think even, even with the existing research, I feel like, and even in my experience, it seems like a lot of times mastery criteria can, can be sort of selected arbitrarily. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. You know, I've, I've had the experience of looking at my clients' IEPs or, or their treatment plans and seeing things like, and I'm not kidding when I say this, like a 40% would be the mastery criteria, which is just like completely baffling to see. I'm not, not even having done any research in the area to think 40% would be considered mastery criteria. So I think mastery criteria, as, as you kind of have talked about, is one of those things most behavior analysts will have heard of, potentially interacted with in some, in some way, whether that be reading a plan or obviously working on helping their clients work on goals. But it's one of those things that I feel like is deceptively simple. Like, oh yeah, my client has mastery criteria, right? They may not actually truly know like what the definition of mastery criteria is, uh, really what are those components and why it's so important. So would you mind talking about that? Like what is mastery criteria and why is it so important? I can talk uh, on that a little bit. Um, Fuller and FINAP have a paper that was published in 2018, and they actually defined it with two primary components. So the first thing people typically want to look at when they are talking about mastery criteria is the level of performance. So a lot of times that's going to be measured through an accuracy percentage. So 80%, 90%, 100% correct, whatever that may be. Um, and then typically that second component is the frequency of observation. So that's going to be the number of sessions at that level of performance. That, that's really helpful clarification, looking at really how well this is being performed as defined by those criteria. Now, again, one of those deceptively simple pieces on, on, on sort of first pass, it's like, yeah, of course, like we want our students potentially, you know, scoring higher in certain areas, but there are potentially implications in terms of, uh, in some of the previous research, and of course, this paper, looking at certain scores potentially meaning things sort of long-term for that client. So can we talk about why mastery criteria are so important? 
Yeah, and I can respond to that. And actually, I want to to add on to uh, how Emily defined mastery, uh, which she did very, very well. Um, but I want to make a note even about that term that we use, mastery criteria. And in fact, a mastery itself or mastery criteria itself is sort of a misnomer. Um, and so when we're talking about mastery, there's uh, what the mastery criterion, really what we're referring to is some sort of performance criteria at a certain level across a certain number of observations that's sufficient. Um, and uh, when you think about the, the definition of mastery, what we generally mean by that is somebody that's extremely skilled and proficient in something, um, that they can perform it in any environment uh, with distractors and that it maintains over time. Um, and so certainly, um, if I were to uh, use the mastery criterion of 80% or above, if I were to stop at 80% of stop signs, no one would call me a masterful driver. Uh, or if I were to um, only put on 80% of my clothes this morning, no one would say, oh my gosh, you're, you're a masterful dresser. Um, but uh, we do use, so we use that term mastery, but really what we're trying to say is just this like bare minimum. It's the very opposite. It's the bare minimum level of learning for which we're, we are willing to accept. And so for that reason, I think that what we're really referring to is just an initial acquisition criterion. And that when we say mastery, what we should really uh, reserve that for is that end goal is, are they performing it at a certain level after a certain duration of time in the presence of distractors, in the natural environment, in the way that we want it to, in the presence of all the people we want them to. And we can't possibly know that unless we actually take data on those things. And it, that data isn't the 80% or above in the session chair with us. Um, so I'd say that's, again, that's an initial acquisition criterion, really. Um, and that brings us to why it's so important, as you said, Cody, as sometimes people are arbitrarily selecting that, arbitrarily selecting it and saying like, oh, well, that's just what I was taught to do. And in fact, in my uh, dissertation, I did a survey of BCBAs and I asked them what criteria they used. Uh, and I had them answer a series of questions regarding what levels and across how many observations. And, and then I had an open-ended area where people could add comments. And I had people getting almost a little bit upset about how too simple that was, that they had all of these other criteria that they applied. Um, and then I had a question asking them, but where did you learn this? Uh, and the majority of people said, well, from uh, my supervisor. Uh, and very little said from published literature, which is actually good because had they said that, I know they probably would have been lying <laughs> about it. Um, so they have these very, very intricate rules, but they're not sure where those rules were developed from. Um, and then when it comes time to applying those rules in a specific program for a specific behavior, for a specific individual, the, uh, the tendency is to use these general ubiquitous rules, like 80% or above for three sessions in a row. But what does that really mean? Uh, or is it appropriate for that skill, uh, right? Like for a stop sign, for you know, stopping at stop signs, maybe that is not appropriate for crossing the street. That's probably not appropriate, especially when we know over time behavior is going to deteriorate. Now, if it's something that's likely to be reinforced often and in the environment and built upon, then maybe 80% is sufficient. So we have this desire to pick these very ubiquitous general rules, 
but it's so much more nuanced uh, at the individual level for the individual behaviors that we're interested in. Thank you for that clarification. I, I got a couple of things I want to sort of comment on that. One, that initial acquisition criteria label, label makes so much sense to me. Like I, I love that label is why don't we see more of that? Uh, or maybe or maybe you're pushing for more of that in published research, but I feel like I instantly want to stop using mastery criteria as, as the description, description for or all of this. Right. And um, yeah, we do have, uh, we're, I'm working on another paper with uh, Dr. Dan Finup on that, the use of that terminology. And then we have a book cha chapter coming out as well. That will we'll be labeled performance criteria. Um, and then talking about like the different levels at which we should apply criteria and, and how to label them. Uh, but I, I say the same thing to my students is if I could ask you to do one thing is just stop saying that phrase, but it's so ingrained in us. I've been using it for so long. And I think that's the difficult difficulty is just getting people to, to switch the terminology for something that's so um, universally used. But I think it's extremely important. It's not just semantics, because as we know, like words guide behaviors. So as the field has grown, the behavior, behavior analysts, board certified behavior analysts are getting further and further removed from directly working with their clients. And they're more so navigating other individuals who are working with those clients. And so the words that we use serve as SDs that evoke certain behaviors on the, on, on the part of those individuals. So if I have an RBT who is using that phrase, phrase, mastery criteria, and then they also have a history their whole life of interacting with that word of what mastery means, it signals to that person, we're done here, we can wash our hands of it, because the, the right, they've mastered the program, we can throw it into maintenance, which is a whole other conversation about what that means throwing it into maintenance, but, uh, but it signals it's done. Whereas if we use another word that says initial acquisition criteria, and it says, well, the first step is done because what we're really interested in is assuring that it happens in the natural environment, that it generalizes, that it maintains. Um, and I think it's important for practitioners, but it's also important for researchers because that calls into question a lot of acquisition research as well Is like, to what extent have they evaluated? Did it meet, result in a meaningful change? not in the chair, not at the end of the study once they hit mastery, but at the end of the actual mastery criteria, right? Uh, did we demonstrate it in the natural environment? Because that's really what we're here to do as behavior analysts. That's our main goal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the risk of someone, you know, thinking their client reached mastery on something when they simply yeah, reached this initial performance criterion uh, yeah, and the implications I think are, 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 are really important to consider. Do you think, and I'm sort of, as I'm hearing you talk about this and sort of thinking back on my own like research and I'm like wondering, did I, have I used, have I published any research that said mastery criteria, like three sessions, 80, I, it's, if, if I haven't published a paper and I probably have it on a poster. So, um, I'm sort of, uh, uh, confessing my guilt here. I imagine that a lot of the sort of editorial requirements or sort of conversations around these things might contribute to the continuation of this misunderstanding of, of mastery criteria. Do you think that that's right? Cause I, cause I have, I'm like thinking about why I've done it in, in research sometimes, not for clinical practice, but for research. And a lot of times it's like, well, I'm essentially replicating a study 
that had this rule in there and like i'm trying to essentially you know match what they did but now all of a sudden i am contributing to this misunderstanding yeah i believe that could be the case um we actually have uh, another study that i was involved with uh, and that's uh, McDougal et al. 2020. And we did an evaluation, a uh, descriptive analysis of all the literature published in, uh, on master or an acquisition studies and looked at what mastery criteria they used. And even with replications, I noticed uh, that they didn't always replicate the mastery criteria. So even that calls into question the replication. I think it just wasn't really thought of all that much as it, an integral part of the learning context, uh, but it is, right? And so from one study to the next, if I if I do everything else held constant, but I change the mastery criterion, that in and of itself might affect learning and the maintenance of those effects. And I don't believe that mastery criteria were previously looked at as an independent variable. It was just some arbitrary procedure that you adopted within the lab or that you learned at some point. And so, like I said, even across replications, you'll find that the research will sort of like switch it. And I found it even within studies that they were switching. So different students had different ones. So this, the participant was exposed to either 80% or 90% for two or three sessions. And so you'll see it even varies within an experiment um, that might differentially impact the results as well. And that sort of brings us to looking at what some of the previous research on this topic of looking at the differential effects of different mastery criteria. Uh, most of that really looking at mastery criteria using a, a least the most prompting hierarchy. Could you talk a little bit about some of that previous research and really what what this research project was was contributing or, or doing differently. Yeah, and I will I'll answer that and I'll then we'll turn it over to Emily on this study. Uh, so the previous research when I mean, my dissertation included and and speaking of sort of just selecting out uh, arbitrarily uh, what kind of teaching procedures uh, that is just what I utilized because that's what those clients were utilizing within their placement at the time was this least to most pr prompting hierarchy and so uh and then the other study that was conducted by Fuller and Fienup in 2018 that came out about that same time, uh, they also used a least to most prompting hierarchy. Uh, one of the, the comments that I got when I was undergoing the review process from the reviewers, which was an astute observation was, well, it's more common to use most to least. Uh, not least to most. And perhaps most to least would lead to less errors. And if you have less errors during learning, then by virtue of that, you'll have less errors uh, resultant after. And so uh, they had criticized the use of the least to most. So that's really what led to this research line was, okay, let's think about that as if we have less errors uh, during our teaching procedures, or at least use a procedure that is likely to produce less errors, then will we see that maybe that 80% would be more useful ubiquitously as a rule, that you don't see as much deterioration in that follow-up period. Um, and so uh, this was something that I was discussing at the time um, and, and was publishing my dissertation. And uh, Emily got interested at that point. So then she can kind of follow up to, to why she was interested in this study and what she did. 
Yeah, so I think Sarah gave a great introduction um, with all of the previous le research leading up to this project. Um, definitely what we did was primarily a replication of some previous research that was already out there. Um, like she said, the primary change that we made in this study was using the most to least prompting hierarchy. So in this study, we were teaching our participants tacting skills, and we taught them to an 80, 90, and 100% mastery criteria um, using that most to least prompting hierarchy. So that's kind of the difference between this paper and some previous research that was already out there. Could you talk about for this particular paper, what that most to least prompting hierarchy looked like? Like what were the steps of that? Sure. So we actually used a most to least prompt sequence with a progressive time delay also embedded in there. Um, so we had four primary prompt steps and the first one was a zero second delay with a full vocal prompt. Um, so we would immediately provide the entire word of the target stimulus. That second step added in a two second delay with a partial vocal. So that was kind of the first syllable of the word or that first sound blend. And then the third step was a four second delay with a partial vocal. And that was really just the beginning sound of that first letter of the word. And then step four would be an independent response from our participants. And who were the participants of the study? So we had three participants in our study. They were all four to five years old um, with a diagnosis of autism. Two of them came from a local peer model preschool that Auburn partners with for some practicum experiences. And our last participant came from Auburn University's ABA clinic at the time. Could you tell us a little bit about the children, like uh, what their what their skill sets were heading into it um, in terms of, I believe you were targeting a, a vocal response, so they probably all had, you know, that type of skill heading in. Yeah, so each of our participants varied a little bit. We um, did do the assessment of basic learning abilities, the ABLAR with one of our participants, Paul, who scored a level six. Um, so that um, gives you an idea of where he was in terms of being able to make discriminations. In terms of their vocal language, um, all of them were observed making spontaneous tacks or mans with a word that was similar in terms of like syllables and sounds with the target stimuli that we were using. So we knew that they had the ability to produce that vocalization. Um, and pretty much all three participants could um, express requests using three to five word utterances. One of our participants, um, Paul, he did have the strongest verbal repertoire and he was speaking in full sentences at the time of this study. What were the skills that you were working on targeting with the participants? So in this study, we were working on correctly tacting stimuli. So they were just vocally stating the name of the item that was on a index card. And in the setup, it's just, you know, you present one index card and they're just, they're saying the, the tacting it. So we set up our sessions to have 10 trials each. So they were three target stimuli within one set. Um, and we actually presented three target stimuli on the table at one time, and we would point to the target and present the discriminative stimulus, what is this, and then the designated prompt, um, followed by the individual's response. Gotcha. So 
for each set of stimuli and we'll kind of talk about your stimuli sets in a moment but for each set there's three targets you present all three simultaneously and sort of point at each one individually and they would be tacting it as you point yeah and we would rotate the array in between each trial too so there wasn't the same target stimuli on the left the entire session so we would rotate in between trials Got you. Is, was there any particular reason why to have why you had all three present at the same time? I think it made the skill maybe a little stronger to be able to tact in the presence of other distractors. Um, so that really was the reason we chose to do that. Yeah, that that's really cool. I I I, I feel like I, I've seen. A lot of programs do one at a time, but as you're talking about that, yeah, it makes sense to have distractors. And in terms of just being able to sort of rapidly, I don't know what the pace was of, for your clients, but to be able to go through them more rapidly, it seems like having them all on the table simultaneously, you could kind of get through the learning opportunities a lot faster, which seems like could be great. Yeah, it was definitely very efficient because we just had three cards on the table, so you could quickly present the SD deliver the prompt, deliver the consequence, rotate those stimuli, and then move on to the next trial pretty quickly. How were the like individual targets selected for each participant? So Sarah was really a part of this on the onset of the study, um, but primarily we were looking at items that the participants were unlikely to receive any formal training outside of our study. Um, so we did not want them to experience any incidental teaching in the classroom that might lead to acquisition of these targets. So that was our primary criteria for selecting them. We tried to make them similar in difficulty in terms of the amount of syllables that they had to make sure um, the difficulty of those sets was kind of equal across. So that wouldn't skew our results. And, and part of that sort of trying to match across the, the sets leads into some of the criteria or ways of setting up part of your design, which was the adapted alternating treatments design embedded within a, a multiple baseline. Could you talk about that design, really how you set that up, why you chose this particular design? Yeah, we talked through a bunch of different designs um, to best fit our project and be able to demonstrate experimental control. Um, so one thing we definitely wanted to do was demonstrate this effect across multiple participants. So that's kind of where the non-concurrent multiple baseline design came in. Um, and we'll talk about this when we talk about future research and some of our limitations. We really wish we had a within subject replication as well. Um, this particular study did not include that. We just had it across all three of those participants. Um, and then we used the embedded alternating treatments design so that we could evaluate the effects of those varying criterion. I think like many behavior analysts, I'm a, I'm a sucker for like looking at the graph to understand, you know, the, the design. Um, I want to give uh, Sarah an opportunity to jump in with comments on the design, but I also want to circle back to this graph in a moment too. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that in, in why this design um, and some of the comments that Emily made. 
Uh, so as far as the selection of stimuli and the design, really we're wearing two hats in this study and it's, it's the scientist practitioner model. So we're always being pulled in those two directions first as a scientist and then also as a practitioner. So you wanna select stimuli that aren't so arbitrary that you're sort of wasting the client's time. And maybe you look at it, you're like, why did they teach them cook cooking utensils? Well, maybe those things might be useful to learn at some point, but they're not really learning it right now. Um, and so, or, or wouldn't be as exposed as uh, possible, the possibility of being exposed to those particular kitchen items might be less right now. Um, or the state uh, state names would be another one too. But then also the design as well. Uh, I really love this design. So I wanted to highlight this, that this design is very accessible to practitioners and it allows them to wear uh, that scientist hat at the same time. And so because it's a non-concurrent design, really if I'm working with just one client, I can be simultaneously evaluating these three criteria for this program. And the next time, I have a, a individual that comes along and I run that same program with them, I can also just expose them to those three criteria and counterbalance the stimuli uh, sets assigned to each of the criterion levels. And after three clients, well, there you go. You just stack them on one another and you have a, a chance to replicate this study, which is so needed, right? Like, so we've only got three replications here with three participants, but you're talking about a rule that applies to so many individuals across so many programs. And again, it's so nuanced and uh, that there's really a need for uh, practitioners to kind of put on that scientist hat. And so I just want to throw that in there that this design in and of itself, I, I've always loved this design for that purpose is that it allows me to both be a scientist and a practitioner and wait for those occasions in which I can stack upon similar client situations. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and from the, the non-concurrent multiple baseline design piece of, of not having to do it with multiple clients at the same exact time, the adapted alternating treatments piece also being super accessible, right, for the practitioners. And I love this design. I feel like I could accidentally take a sort of a, a left turn on this interview and only talk about the design. We I, I won't sidetrack us here. There's a, a great interview I did with Tiffany Kodak on this podcast exclusively talking about adapted alternating treatments design. So for the listeners out there, if, if you're like, well, oh, we want to hear more about this, check out that podcast. I, I want to make sure and focus on, on the task at hand in, in this particular episode. But to talk about a little bit this adapted alternating treatments piece for your study, what were the the different um, what were the different data paths you were assigning, or the different what were the different criteria I, sh I should say that you were assigning to the different sets within this adapted alternating treatments design? Sure. So for this one, each target set, which was comprised of three different target stimuli, were assigned a designated mastery criterion. So for us, the level of performance or the accuracy requirement is what we changed in this study. So within each of those different um, data paths, the target set was assigned to either an 80% mastery criterion or performance criterion, 90% criterion, or 100% criterion. Um, each one of those was across three consecutive sessions. Did the criterion level start at 80? Because that's sort of what there's sort of precedence for in our field through research or sort of what people generally say. 
or what was the rationale for that? So in Dr. Richling's dissertation, actually, when she did the survey to board certified behavior analyst, 80% accuracy across three sessions was actually the most commonly reported um, performance criterion used by practitioners. So that's why we selected that one. Gotcha. And when we say that uh, the different criteria were assigned to the different stimulus groups, was there any particular, was it just sort of a random assignment or how, how was each set assigned to a criterion level? Yeah, so we randomly assigned them for each participant and then we counterbalance that across participants. So the targets that were taught to an 80% criterion for participant one would be assigned to the 90% criterion for participant two and the 100% criterion for participant three. And for the mastery criteria, once they were assigned, so let's say, you know, stimulus set one or whatever, right, was assigned to 80%. Does that mean that essentially the, the moment that you get, was it two or three sessions in a row was your criteria? Three. So the moment they get to three over at or over 80%, we've got criteria and sort of we were sort of terminating that initial uh, lesson, basically. Yeah, that's correct. So once they met that certain criteria at or above that mastery percentage, we would pause our acquisition phase and they would move into the follow up maintenance phase of the study. Gotcha. And that's a, that's a very good question, Cody. And so I think it's important to note that what we weren't trying to do in this study was evaluate maintenance after someone performed at a certain level, um, right? And so that is, so we weren't trying to hold constant behavior at 90% or hold constant behavior at 80%. Uh, but practitioners aren't doing that either. They're not like, uh-oh, you got 95% back up. Right? We have to make sure you do that. So that wasn't the idea. The idea was to test this independent variable, which really actually is an independent variable affecting the uh, teacher's behavior, not the learner's behavior. The learner's behavior is a byproduct of it. So the learner's behavior is free to, um, free to move within parameters. So, but it, that is, it's an important thing to note that it's not performance after a certain level. It's a bare minimum level. Yeah. And that's a fascinating distinction because, and we'll talk about, you know, your results in a little while and, and what that means, but in theory, at least, and I think we maybe see a little bit of it in your data that if we're talking about the distinction between what the mastery criteria are or the performance criteria are versus how they're performing, they could theoretically be performing higher. So if we're seeing, you know, potentially concerns around a criterion level not producing long-term maintenance, that you know, they could have even be they could have even been performing higher than that particular level. So in some ways, it's almost more concerning, right? like in some ways. So uh, yeah, interesting distinction there. And I think that sort of helps us understand how you sort of set this, this whole process up before you, we get into like how you, what each, each individual uh, session and trial look like you did a performance or you did a, I'm sorry, you did a preference assessment prior to running these, these trials. Why did you do that? And what did that look like? So we conducted a multiple stimulus without replacement preference assessment for each participant. 
Um, and we took some teacher interview and parent reports for what items would be highly preferred for them. Um, and for some, we just did a tangible and for some we did an edible, for some we did both, um, depending on what their parents and teachers reported. Um, and that was so we could determine something that would be very motivating for them during our acquisition phase. Um, so before the study even started, we completed a full MSWO. And then prior to each session, we would complete a brief MSWO. So basically, we would present the top three highest preferred items or edibles and allow them to choose one to work for for the duration of that session. And in terms of when they got access to that preferred item, was that after each individual session? So they're getting at some point was it, I think there was three, right? So there's three different sessions you were running. So was it essentially one session break with the item, another session break with the item, or, or what did that look like? How, how is that distributed? Yeah, so our delivery of the reinforcer changed based on what phase of the study we were in. So during our baseline sessions, they received access to that item on a fixed time, one minute schedule. Um, and so that was so we could pair with them and decrease the likelihood of seeing some problem behavior during our baseline sessions. Um, so that was not contingent on correct or incorrect responses. We would usually just pair that with some non-behavior specific praise. So I like how you're hanging out with me, cool sitting in your chair, you can hang out on the iPad for one minute. Um, so baseline and follow-up probes were identical in their procedures. So for both of those phases, it was a fixed time one minute schedule for access. And during our teaching phase, we did an FR1 schedule for behavior-specific praise. Um, and then they were given access to the edible or tangible on a VR3 schedule. Gotcha. And how long would they interact with the tangible item typically? I'm sure it maybe varied a little bit, but. Yeah, we provided 30 seconds of access. Good question. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about what the baseline looked like and sort of draw back to what we'd said earlier. There's three stimuli out, you're pointing at each one, they had the opportunity to tact, and then you're you're probably shuffling around and doing that until you get to, to 10 trials per session. And then you moved into the, the teaching phase. How did that look different? What did that look like? So the setup was very similar. We had three index cards on the table. Um, the SD was similar as well. So we would point to the target stimuli, say, what's this? Um, and then we would deliver the designated prompt steps. So we kind of went over there a little bit earlier. We were using a most to least prompting hierarchy with the embedded progressive time delay. Um, so that first step was a zero second delay to a full vocal prompt. So we would deliver the SD, deliver the designated prompt, um, contingent on a correct response, they would get that FR1 for praise, and then a VR3 for the tangible or the edible. Um, and then contingent on incorrect response, we immediately represented that trial with the most intrusive prompt, which would be an immediate full vocal prompt. Um, and then whether or not the participant engaged in a correct or incorrect response during the error correction, we just proceeded to that next trial. 
I think another thing that's important to point out uh, across both baseline and teaching here is uh, how we would respond to non-responses. And so it's important within the data that uh, when we say incorrect responses, we mean incorrect, not non-responses. So we only, uh, we only included or counted trials in which there was some kind of response, uh, not the absence of a response. And we did that purposefully because we wanted to ensure that uh, we weren't counting non-responses due to non-compliance mm. and so non-motivation and so it, there had to be enough motivation at least to say I don't know for it to count as an incorrect response but I, I, I think that's an important component of this study. Definitely yeah that's helpful clarification. With the performance criteria I'm trying to switch out of saying mastery criteria <laughs> But with the performance criteria, what, regardless of what the particular stimulus set was assigned to, was it performing at that level with no prompts? Like if it was 80%, it had to be 80%. They had to be done with the prompts by that point. Yes, that's correct. So the master criterion was 80% independent, correct responding across those three sessions. And when one stimulus set reached that performance criteria, you just essentially stopped doing that. And we'll talk about the follow-up probes in a minute, but you stopped doing that for now. And you continued with the other stimulus sets until they reached that criteria. Yeah. And something else we actually did was introduce new teaching sets. So that data is not included in our published study, but that was so they had the same number of target stimuli and teaching at one time. So in theory, if you have mastered set one and set two, and you're only working on set three, um, and you don't have any other targets that are in acquisition, it could in theory be a little bit easier to acquire those, which could thereafter affect their maintenance as well. Um, so we did introduce additional teaching sets once one was mastered. In addition to what Emily said, um, yes, yeah, so it, it would also, or it's also important that you do that because that's more accurately depicting of what a practitioner would do. So once somebody mastered some skill, they're not going to say like, okay, well, you don't have to do anything else. Typically what would happen is you would say, we'll start another program at the same time. So that, that component of uh, the study was meant to mimic that, that there was always going to be the same number of targets in rotation being actively taught in acquisition at the same time simultaneously. Um, and then back uh, in my dissertation, uh, you'll see that that happened uh, in experiment uh, four. So that was a, a change that we made at that time that we thought might be relevant. Uh, but yes, it's, a, it's an important part of the study as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good touch because you're right. I mean, I, I certainly would hope that you don't go into a clinic and, and you, they're only running one trial and you go, well, where are the other ones? Well, they, they mastered those. It's like, yeah, you're not, you didn't introduce anything else. Right. Uh, yeah. So that, that's so true. Uh, and, and really sort of relevant to clinical practice. So you had your baseline and you had sort of staggered baseline across the participants. You implement the teaching, you go until each of the set hit their criteria, and then you did follow-up probes. Could you talk about what those look like and, and why those were included in this study? Sure. So our entire purpose of this study was to evaluate how well skills maintained after meeting a certain performance criterion. So these were really, really important data for us to include in this study. Um, the sessions looked identical to baseline. So we were not delivering any sort of prompts and we were not delivering consequences contingent on incorrect or correct responses. Um, so as soon as someone met the mastery criterion for that target set, 
we would pause their acquisition. And then one week later, we would do their first follow-up probe. Um, so again, that session was identical to baseline. Once that was completed, we did probes at weeks three, two, three, and four. Um, so we had four weekly probes for each participant on each target set. Um, a couple of those you'll see in our data are missing. Like Sarah talked about, we were very much so practitioners at the time, um, working in a very clinical setting. So due to scheduling conflicts, you will see a couple of those probes missing for some participants. Yep, that'll happen when you're working with real clients, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they, they don't always show up or something else happens. The, the, the beautiful complications of doing clinical research. Um, very familiar with, with some of the pains associated with that. The, the, the follow-up probes, thank you for describing those. I mean, and at the end of the day, those are sort of where the, the, the information is uh, or sort of the conclusions are in the study, right? Where, what you, where you see the performance tells us a lot about these potential performance criteria. So, you know, difficult to describe a graph. So we don't need to get into the exact, you know, details of, of what the overall outcomes were. But could you speak about in general, what we saw results-wise from, from this study looking at those follow-up probes? Sure. So just to kind of summarize the graph, you are looking at um, a multiple baseline design across participants. So for Walter and Paul, um, our first and our last participant, they both emitted zero correct responses in baseline. Um, Adam had a couple correct responses in baseline, but we waited until we saw a decreasing trend there. Um, and actually in his last couple baseline sessions, he had 0% correct responding. Um, so you'll see for each participant, they met mastery criteria at varying rates um, for each different target set. Um, and then during the weekly follow-up probes, you'll notice that every single participant performed with the highest rates of accuracy for the target sets that were assigned to the 100% mastery criterion. Um, and all of the participants performed with the lowest rates of accuracy for the target sets that were assigned to the 80% criterion. Um, and something else that I think is important to note in our data is that we observed a lot less variability in performance during those follow-up probes with the target sets that were assigned to the higher mastery criterion as well. Um, so there were a lot less variable responses with that 100% mastery criterion than with the lower criterions. So what does that mean for us? Like thinking about potential, you know, clinical implications or research implications, looking at these findings, what should people be sort of taking away and, 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 and thinking about? So I think this varied in a lot of the previous research in terms of the use of lower mastery criterion. So for example, in a lot of the previous research, a lower master criterion when using a least to most prompting hierarchy was not sufficient in maintaining those higher levels of performance. Um, in this study, the results kind of suggest that a lower accuracy requirement, say 90%, um, may actually produce acceptable levels of performance during maintenance if you're using that most to least um, prompting hierarchy. So perhaps a more stringent accuracy criterion may be required to produce maintenance for skills taught with a least to most procedure. Um, and something else that I think is important to note across this study is that the 80% accuracy master criterion really did not produce strong maintenance for our participants, um, which is concerning because Dr. Richling's dissertation did show that that's what most people are using. 
Um, so I think this is research that we need to pay attention to um, and bring into our clinical practices. Absolutely. I think it's important to note that for, for one of the participants, the 80% criterion did use, and that's also consist or did work. Um, and that's, that's uh, also consistent with the previous research too, that it sort of, uh, it depended uh, on the participant. It depended on the program, and there were there weren't any real patterns across the participants. So, eighty percent for one target might work, but it wouldn't for another one. So, it's not like eighty percent works for this guy, uh, but it was dependent upon the target itself. Um, but so the, the idea isn't that eighty percent never works. It just doesn't work as a ubiquitous rule across all programs and all individuals. And as Emily noted, the previous research, or at least in my dissertation, I also showed that 90% uh, when we use those additional, what I call the, the uh, dummy stimuli or these ad additional acquisition sets that would come in, 90% uh, also uh, didn't work. But what's important to note in that study is uh, that when we introduced the 90% criterion, criterion, we're also running more trials per day which matters about how fast you're acquiring them. Is it across one day or is it across multiple days that these criteria are placed? Uh, and then, and that differed from the results that you find in Fuller and FINAP where they said 90% was just fine, but 80% wasn't. So the 80% is, uh, is consistent across all of them. There's differing results when it comes to 90%. But if you look at Fuller and FINAP, they use 20 trials in each session, they define their session by, session by 20 trials. And in my dissertation, we defined it by 10. And this study, we say 10. And so that's completely different too. And I think that all highlights that each of these components that's part of it is another little uh, moderating variable that's changing the results. And then you have to take them into their entirety. You can't really just read it as, well, 80% doesn't work or 90% works. It's, it's more like a field theory is as you change one little component of it, it's going to change all of the components components of it and the resulting maintenance thereof. That makes a lot of sense that you're going to see sort of individual variation based on all those, those variables. What I think is, and I know like having sort of overall conclusive rules, you know, isn't really potentially all that sort of useful, but what I seem to be picking up from this research is at the very least, this arbitrary rule that at some point formed in our field that like three sessions at 80% is safe, that like this is sort of quote unquote mastery criteria that at the very least that's not flying, right? And that from what I can tell and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like, you know, sure, maybe 80% with a little, with a few clients or participants, 90 with a little bit more, but like it's sort of the scale of trustworthiness or reliability, it seems like, to go from, from 80 to 100, 100 obviously being the, the better of, of those comparison. Right. And, and, you know, I think for some fields, you're right, that 80% across the board without any um, thought really isn't working for us. Now, there might be some isolated circumstances where that is a completely justified uh, criterion. And I think, but I think they're few and far between. Um, but one of them might be a skill, like I said, that is likely to be reinforced in the natural environment. So it's really likely to increase after those sessions. If you mindfully set up the environment and that's really what we should be doing in a way such that it's getting naturally reinforced and it's likely to go to above 80% and it's going to be a, a, a so 
socially meaningful behavior, uh, which means that it will be social, it will be used often and reinforced often. And then maybe 80% is sufficient there uh, because you're going to assume that it will increase thereafter. Uh, but if you actually, and I guess the other isolated situation would be if you want to have responses that might decrease to 20%. So if there's a behavior that for some reason you're okay with occurring 20% of the time, go ahead and use 80. But if you really think 80% is sufficient, teach to 100. So if 80% is what you want in the end, don't program for 80%. Assume there is going to be deterioration. Um, and so I assume that's why people are setting at 80 because they're in their mind, they're thinking, well, 80% is good enough, but that's not what's gonna, you're actually gonna get is 80% if that's the, the bare minimum criteria you set it to. That makes a lot of sense. And I know you didn't look at criteria under 80%, but sort of looking at these results in combination with the other studies, it seems reasonable to sort of infer that criteria lower than 80% would produce even less reliable long-term outcomes. Yes, and that's what we found um, in my dissertation when we used the the fifty percent or the sixty percent, and then Fuller and Phenup as well used a very uh, small percentage criterion and found that that eighty percent was essentially indistinguishable from those in the results it produced. And of course, you know, sixty percent could re result in responding higher than sixty percent, and that's why it sort of eh, it it didn't matter. It was about a horse apiece. Uh, I guess I aged myself with that comment, but um, yeah, it was it was a, a horse apiece uh, on on that. So yeah, well, I have seen, and this is sort of pulling us out of sort of research for a second here, and, and looking at some something I've noticed when looking at clients' IEPs from time to time, which is that they might have what they call mastery criteria, maybe even set at like eighty percent. It'll say like 80% in like two of three sessions or something. So it's like 80%, 67% of the time or something like that, which kind of honestly makes my head explode in terms of confusion and where that's coming from. But that, that seems uh, really, really concerning given sort of the data that, that you're looking at here. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you know, same thing when I, we sent out the survey that people, they had some very intricate rules that they would utilize. Um, and it wasn't just practitioners. So uh, uh, related to the last comment that I was making, actually, I just was involved in another study uh, that I highly recommend people reading. Um, and it was by Dr. Now, Dr. Christina Wong, uh, Dr. Finup and myself, and we did a systemic, it was part of her dissertation. Um, and we did a systemic review and statistical analysis across research in uh, three journal or three years and uh, three journals. And what we did was we took all of the acquisition studies that were published across those three year those three journals in those three years, and we extrapolated the data from them. Uh, we extrapolated what criteria they used, and then we also extrapolated what uh, maintenance and generalization. Uh, results they got within that study and then did a correlational analysis of those two. Um, and what we found, like you said, we found all sorts of strange criteria that were being used in the research too. As I said, like differing between clients are these like two of three sessions. And then you, of course, you've got the first session of the day 
or it would be like they could either meet this one or that one, which in my mind, I guess the how that comes about as a researcher when you have two different clients meeting different criteria and you want to put them in the same study. So then you say, well, it had to be this or that. So it was more like an after the fact sort of application would be my guess. Um, but yeah, and actually an alarming number of studies that don't report at all what criteria that they use. Uh, and so um, I think it was uh, 20 some percent uh, don't tell, say at all what they utilize. Uh, 41% of studies didn't report maintenance or generalization, which if that's the most important data, which I think it is, that's 41% of our studies aren't really telling us what matters. Um, and then there were a lot of them that were above that 80% or below that 80% criterion that were using something below that actually. And I didn't even know that existed in my head when I put that in there. It's like, nobody actually uses that, but they do. Um, not sure why. Uh, and what's not rocket science is that that usually resulted in very low maintenance uh, of that uh, behavior thereafter. And it's almost uh, linear in that relationship. Again, you know, outcome isn't rocket science. The higher the criterion, the higher the outcome. Uh, so if you're losing, using a low criterion, I would definitely question that. What journal can, can people find that paper in? Uh, that one is in behavioral interventions. And it includes an analysis of studies in JABA, behavioral interventions, and behavior analysis and practice. And that's currently available? Yes, that is. So that was published in 2022. And so I think the preprint or the online first version is available. And then who's, who's the first author, just so we can track that down? Uh, Wong, W-O-N-G, Christina, Dr. Christina Wong. We'll be sure to link to that paper in the show notes so that people have access to it. On the topic of 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 other research or other resources people who are listening to this or reading the paper and are interested in learning more or exploring more do you have other recommendations things they should check out think about potential studies for them to think about anything like that yeah um and i i've kind of got a list of them here but i'd be interested to hear from emily uh first about what she would recommend and she's the one that is working in practice right now. And so she's gonna have a unique perspective of what's gonna be most relevant to her. Of course, me and like, I wear a little bit more of that research hat. I'm gonna suggest some other arbitrary studies that people read that maybe wouldn't be of interest to Emily as much. So Emily, what would you recommend? Sure, so I think a lot of the studies that we have mentioned, if you're interested in this topic, would be helpful to read. Um, so Dr. Richling's dissertation is published in JABA in 2019. So I would definitely recommend that one as it kind of led up into this study. Um, same with Fuller and FINEP in 2018. So that's kind of another replication with some variations um, with similar procedures that we have. So that kind of falls under this category as well. Um, uh, Dr. Richling mentioned McDougall 2020. So that was a descriptive analysis that's published. Um, so that kind of compares what mastery criteria is being utilized in research and what our practitioners are using. So that's gonna highlight kind of the disparity between those two things. Um, and there's another study that is published by Sally Hamrick in 2021. So she actually looked at changing different components of mastery criteria while using fluency procedures. Um, so she was using fluency teaching procedures to teach Alabama state sex laws to 
juveniles that were adjudicated for illegal sexual behavior. So that's a really interesting paper that looks at comparing the effects of kind of changing the rate component of a mastery criteria as it relates to teaching with fluency procedures. Um, so that's another one within this kind of topic that I would recommend to practitioners. Thank you. Yeah, those papers sound excellent. Again, we'll try to link to all of those in the show notes. Sarah, anything to add to that list? Yeah, and I'd like to note some of those uh, studies that Emily listed, uh, McDougall et al. 2020 and Hammock et al. 2021, those were also both students of mine here at Auburn University. So those were part of their capstone projects uh, required for graduation. Um, and so that's how they got involved in those ones. But uh, the Hammock study that looked at both rate and accuracy, I think there are important components of this study that also relate to precision teaching and, and fluency. So the, the comparable thing is a fluency aim is how do you set those and then do those actually result in maintenance of those behaviors as well. And what we found in that study is that we talked about uh, the observations across which it has to happen. And as I said, that might matter if it's in the same day or across various days. And we talked about the accuracy, uh, but we didn't talk about was the speed. Uh, And that study showed that those two things did accuracy and speed did not co-vary together, that you could lose, keep one and lose the other. And unless you were measuring both, uh, you wouldn't see that that was happening. And some behavior rate matters. So uh, the arbitrarily like, okay, why sex law fluency? Well, because those, those individuals had to pass a timed examination in order to be released. So the time component became important for us to evaluate. And so we had to sh- make sure that they maintained both of them for an exam that they were going to take in a month, uh, month's time. Um, so some other research I think that's important uh, would be another one by uh, Dr. Wong, Dr. Christina Wong and Dan Fina. Uh, and that was uh, published in 2022. Uh, and it, that's in the Journal of Behavioral Education. And then there is a replication that just came out in uh, by those same authors in 2022 that's been published in JABA. And that's a unit of analysis of operant versus sets. And what that means, uh, and this is one of those that it could seem a, a little bit out there for practitioners, but it's really not. So one of the other arbitrary rules or things that we often do as practitioners is we throw common behaviors into sets and we apply that criteria to that set. Like we did in this study, we say, okay, here's three imitation things. Let's throw them in a set. And, and in our, I think what we do it for is the idea that if we taught five of them at a time, they're going to learn them quicker than if we taught one and then made them get to 80% and then another one and made them get to 80% that we have multiple that we teach. But actually what uh, Dr. Wong found is that you acquire it quicker when you only apply the mastery criterion to individual operants rather than a set uh, and both result in the same maintenance. So uh, why that's, it might seem counterintuitive, but it's probably better to do it based on an operant. So 80, this single one, the single imitative response, get that to 80% because the, the risk that you run, putting that into context is if I have a set of 10 stimuli and I apply a criterion of 80%, one of those stimuli might be only performed at 20% and it will get lost in translation. I won't see that when I aggregate my data on that, on that graph. And, and maybe that one 
is really, really important moving forward. Um, so that's the issue with aggregating data in that way is those, those things sort of get lost in translation. So I think that's an important, some important literature to read. And then overall, there's a broad write-up of this topic by Dr. Finup and Dr. Carr in 2021. And that's a call for research that is much needed in this area of maintenance. And I know we've talked a lot about uh, performance criteria and maintenance today, uh, but there's a whole other area, which is the arbitrary rules that we use for generalization. So when we say across two trainers, across two settings, and all those things that people have come up with, spoiler alert, there's no data on that, that those actually result in generalization either. Um, and there is one study that's published in Behavioral Interventions in 2022, uh, conducted by uh, uh, Schneider uh, et al., along with FINAP. Um, that was part of her dissertation as well, where she she evaluates uh, some of the different like levels and days across which uh, those observations occur too. So, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's my whole list, and I can I can send that to you as well so that you can put that out for your readers so I have it accessible. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be sure to link to those. So many fascinating topics on on the uh, uh, within this. Uh, area of study that operant versus the set mastery is fascinating it kind of blows my mind to think about it a little bit but it makes so much sense and I've seen clients where maybe they were getting like a hundred percent on one operant in you know like you said lower on some of the other ones and I, I've even seen like almost like frustration with getting like the same like I mastered this come on why am I getting the same uh, targets every day. And then, yeah, why don't we weed those out, right? They've got this operant. Why are we keeping it arbitrarily in the set? Why don't we just, you know, keep keep things moving, introduce new operants? It, it seems intuitive when you say it like you do, but, you know, we get stuck in these patterns of doing these arbitrary or implementing these arbitrary criteria. So I wish, I wish we had like two more hours or we could pick sort of these different topics and explore them more. But of course, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been a really sort of fascinating topic. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've learned a lot. And I think we've got a lot of cool resources in areas that the listeners can explore after this. So thank you so much for putting the work in to write this paper and then to coming on the show today to chat about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>